0: Welcome to The Buzz, I'm Christopher Conover. Getting around southern Arizona is about more than potholes and bike paths. It also includes accessibility. Most Tucsonans have thoughts on road and sidewalk conditions, but for some people those conditions are a true roadblock to getting around. Emily Yetman, the executive director of the Living Streets Alliance, began our discussion talking about some of the big problems with our roads.
1: Well, I mean, I don't think anyone has missed the the biggest challenge that we face, which is most of our streets are pretty inhospitable to people. And they're, in most cases, they're downright dangerous. And so we've seen really high Uh, crash rates in our community, mostly along major arterials, like the bigger streets where cars are moving really fast and people still need to, you know, if they're on foot, they still need to get across the street. If they're on bike, they still have places where they need to maneuver with traffic. And when you mix all of those things together um, and the way our our streets are currently designed and built, it, it can be a recipe for disaster. So I think that's a huge challenge to overcome but the good news is that there are a lot of design solutions that help engineer that uh, equation right out of out of the scenario so we're not putting people um, in spaces where where everyone's at risk
0: for people who have mobility issues and disabilities how does Tucson do if it's rough for people who aren't dealing with mobility issues
1: i Certainly can't speak on behalf of everyone with a disability, but what I can tell you is that um, the concept of universal design is really important because essentially it's saying however we're designing and building our, our shared public spaces should accommodate um, you know the the person with the most diverse needs. And what's and if you're doing that, you're gonna be creating Great spaces and useful and accessible spaces for everyone. So it's really, it's kind of shifting the way we think about um, and, uh, how we prioritize and build the spaces that we share. Um, and so I think, I think that if we really center that concept and start, you know, prioritizing that, it, it would really start to shape things differently moving forward. Um, and right now, what we're seeing is is really an environment where that hasn't been kind of the guiding principle. And so we're having to go back as a community and do a lot of modifications and spot fixes, but it's, it's piecemeal, right? Because we're, instead of getting to do it right the first time, we're having to go back in and, and change things and we can't do it all at once. So there's, you know, just so many places where the sidewalk literally ends. And, you know, if you're a person in a wheelchair If you're a mom pushing a stroller, for example, like same scenario, you're going to find yourself in a really unpleasant position of having to turn back around or try and maneuver off of a a sharp corner into traffic. And um, that's that's just not a pleasant way to to move around our city or to exist. It's not dignified. It's not pleasant. It's not welcoming.
0: So how do we change the mindset? And I guess that's the million dollar question, isn't it? We're
1: all gonna be in a place at some point in our life where we have different mobility than maybe we have right now, you know, when we're born, <laughs> we're fully reliant on someone to carry us places and push us around. At some point, many of us who are able bodied uh, get injured, right? And we're gonna need us uh, to use crutches or a wheelchair or one of those great little knee scooters that I see sometimes. Um, Or, and then as we age, right? Like our, just our ability to maneuver is going to change. And so we're, we should all be invested in in building universal design going forward, period, because our, our kids, our families, our elders, all, every single one of us is going to benefit from it at some point and need it at some point.
0: Are there parts of the Tucson metro area that are better on universal design than others? I mean, coming to mind, old sections of the area versus new sections, but does that even hold true?
1: I'm not sure that it does. And, you know, for example, uh, a lot of subdivisions were developed when they were in the county and there weren't requirements for sidewalks for example and then when over time when they got annexed by the city of tucson you know they're now the responsibility of the city of tucson they are part of the city but they still don't have sidewalks so even though they might be newer developments it doesn't necessarily guarantee that they're going to be you know better connected or have continuous um, ways of accessing transit um, sidewalks destinations that kind of thing so I really—it's interesting. Trying—that's a great question. Trying to think about which part of town maybe is most has the most access, and I think it is pretty, pretty piecemeal. There are pieces here and there, but um, you know, and it obviously as we make transit investments, I think we're starting to not only do you know bus shop, shelters and bus stops and um, make sure that those are there, but that the sidewalk network leading up to them is continuous and that there's crosswalks and push button signals to get across the street safely. So I think you know we're we're starting again with that kind of spot treatments trying to build a comprehensive network, but it takes time and it's it's pretty scattered right now.
0: That was Emily Yetman, the executive director of the Living Streets Alliance. Advocates for those with visual impairments say bus stops need to have a uniform design so those who can't see are sure they're actually at a stop. Annie Rempe is an orientation and mobility teacher at the Arizona School for the Deaf and Blind and says learning to navigate the sidewalks and roads is a skill that the school teaches. One of the things well, we'll talk about in this show is accessibility of sidewalks and and crossings and things like that. You come at it from a little different angle, uh, working at the Arizona School for the Deaf and Blind, working with, I would assume kids, but maybe adults on how to navigate the streets. Tell us a little bit about that program and what you do.
2: Yeah, so the program we have here, and really a service that's available to everyone who has a visual impairment or falls under the legal blindness category, um they have access to something called orientation and mobility so that's offered in schools and then also in rehabilitation centers as adults um but yeah we provide training on how to use the cane how to navigate the school uh we incorporate whatever senses that they have available in order to pick up different clues that might help them find their way um We also work out in the community as kids get older, then we'll teach them how to cross streets, how to find different addresses, how to navigate um, business environments, and as things get more complex, bigger intersections. Um, We also teach them how to use a lot of technology like Google Maps and using their phones to navigate to get through town.
0: Have things changed over time with technology, be it, as you mentioned, Google Maps and phones, uh, which so many of us use? But I remember when hybrid cars first came out, there were folks in the blind community who said, wait a minute, I can't hear the car coming. So are these new things, maybe not that new, that your students have to deal with?
2: Yeah, definitely. Because for most people who don't have enough functional vision to know when the light has changed or the crosswalk signal has changed, they depend on the sounds of cars in their parallel street, their nearest parallel lane, to know when it's safe to cross the street. So without those sounds, it I mean, usually it's not just one car that makes that sound, but it can be if it's a smaller intersection. Uh, so they don't have that as much to work with. And it really is more of a problem if there's a left-hand or a right-hand turner when a person's crossing a street. Those are usually the more dangerous vehicles to listen out for, and you can't, you can't really hear them that well. Another thing that recently came up was just waiting for an Uber that was a Prius, and the driver was just kind of expecting one of my students to come walk to them, Um which we often do. If we see an Uber, we walk to it. But if you can't see it, you just stand your ground, you wait. But if you can't hear the car that's there, it's, it's sometimes hard to know that it's there waiting for you.
0: When it comes to the rest of the public out there, if we see somebody who obviously has a visual impairment or maybe we think has a visual impairment, what are some things that we need to know to be helpful Or what are some things we shouldn't do that we might think are helpful that really aren't?
2: Well, I would just say as drivers, really use the vision that you have to look out for people, especially when you're turning left and right, because we're so used to looking for cars that might be coming and turning as soon as it's clear. But we don't always look ahead in the crosswalks before we turn. So I would just say if you can really be cognizant of who is in the crosswalk before you turn. That would make the world a lot safer. Um, Also, just like trimming your hedges um, in front of your house makes a huge difference because as we know, Arizona doesn't have the friendliest plants that you could walk past and that could really make or break a day for somebody who doesn't know it's there. Um, And in terms of like, if you see somebody... That if you're already on the street and you see somebody who looks like they might be in danger, you could, you know, approach them and and ask, would you like any assistance or would you like to grab my arm? Um, We never want to just go up to somebody and assume that they need help. But if you think that they need it, you can offer it. And if you if they decline, then you can go on your way.
0: That was Annie Rempe, a teacher at the Arizona School for the Deaf and Blind. You're listening to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. The University of Arizona is regarded as a top school when it comes to accessibility. Helping with that is the Disability Cultural Center. The center's coordinator, Natty Rico, explained to us that it's dedicated to promoting disability culture and identity.
3: So different from the work that the Disability Resource Center does, our, our work predominantly in, focuses on uh, providing that like identity formation support for students, for community members. And we do so by hosting various events that have to do with disability. Um, we have uh, consistent programming that um, is available not just for students, but for community members in general. Um, and I think what makes us unique is that our center specifically Um, is fully staffed by disabled students and and staff members of the university. Um, And it's not just like physical disabilities, but we all have a variety of disabilities as well. So we'd like to think that we're, we try to be fairly representative of disabled populations, not just on campus, but in general.
0: When you say you offer different programs, what are some of the programs that you offer?
3: In terms of programming, it really depends on what the community is interested in. I think some of our program, some, sorry, so, some of our signature programs are our disability discussions, um, which are bi-weekly um, throughout the semester. And we kind of come together to talk about different topics in relation to disability that people might be interested in. So um, we have one coming up on disability and desirability. Last semester, we had one on dating and disability. We had one at the beginning of the semester where we talked about mental health in the times of COVID. So really, whatever it is that people want to discuss, we provide that space. I think one that I'm going to be leading is going to be disability representation in Disney and Pixar. So, you know, we try to mix it up with like educational ones, but also things that are fun, things that are relevant. Also, sometimes with current events. Um, And so really, it it really is a space where, you know, people are interested in having certain kinds of conversations that they don't feel comfortable having elsewhere. And we want to be that space for people to do so.
0: For people who may be hearing this and, and not understanding why this is an important facility to have on a place like the University of Arizona campus and open to the community as a whole, can you explain to them why it's important to have this?
3: Based on a lot of the work that I do, um, I've noticed that there tends to be a deficit perspective of disability in society at large or disability itself isn't generally talked about or considered, um, in any areas, especially in cultural aspects of diversity and inclusion and whatnot. And so I think the DCC is really important in not only, um, I guess fighting against the stigma of disability as a deficit, but also in recognizing that disability in itself is not inherently a bad thing; that it it can actually serve as an identifier um, for many people, and that it's it that shouldn't be seen as a negative thing. But also that there is community and culture within this aspect of disability. Um, you know, if you consider things like language and art. Um, as part of a culture, uh, disability community also has some of that, right? So we also want to emphasize that um, disability in itself is not just, you know, something that's um, inherently um, physical, that it also has um, other areas such as, like, again, that culture aspect, but even trying to bring more visibility of, like, neurodiversity, um, and what those kinds of disabilities look like as well.
0: You mentioned earlier the pandemic and dealing with mental health during the pandemic. Of course, that's been all across the country. People have talked about that. But did the pandemic change the way you all had to operate, and how has it hit the center?
3: Interestingly enough, so I actually started this role about a month and a half before The campus shut down, but from the short time that I was physically on campus, um, I did notice that a lot of the programs that we offered were uh, both online and in person. So uh, like, for example, our reading groups, we would have, we would be streaming them on Zoom live while we were having them in person. Um, And so I think we had, we already had some of that knowledge on how to use Zoom and how to use some of these features that so many other places were kind of learning as they were going. Um, And so I think we kind of, it didn't really change much, except we all just kind of migrated to Zoom as an online platform. Um, But that's something that we had already kind of been doing already. And we've learned that that tends to be more accessible for folks. Um, And we noticed that we had a wider attendance from people all over the country. We even had people from other countries kind of joining into our programs. And I thought that was really cool because that can't happen if you're doing events solely in person, right? And we constantly have people from different universities across the country reaching out saying, we want to start our own DCC, or we love the programs that you offer. How do we do this on our campus? And I think it's great that we get to provide that kind of support, especially for students who don't feel supported by their resource centers on their campuses.
0: You mentioned other universities reaching out, asking how we did this. How common is a DCC or some facility like a DCC on university campuses in the u s?
3: Yeah, as of now, we've been as uh, we've been meeting with other disability cultural centers since last semester. So it's fairly new that we we're trying to start a network. As of now, I believe there are thirteen of us across the country. So there's very few. And so I feel very fortunate that we at the U of A get to have a DCC and we get to partake in this kind of work. But yes, it's not common at all. I think the newest one just opened up last year at UC Berkeley. Um, and so, yeah, in higher education institutions, there's 13 of us and quickly grow. The interest is there to start centers. It's just a matter of whether, people get institutional support for that or not. Um, And that's what we as a network are trying to work on to see how we can provide a foundation for other universities to start their own DCCs.
0: That was Natty Rico, the coordinator at the Disability Cultural Center at the University of Arizona, which has resources open to everyone in Southern Arizona. Accessibility is about more than movement. There's also communication. Students and families at the Arizona School for the Deaf and Blind can participate in classes in American Sign Language, classes that had to move online during the pandemic. We talked about the program with the school's student life supervisor, Michelle Kelly, with the help of American Sign Language interpreter, Brianna Browder. Our ASL
4: family class has been um, in production for the last 30 years. And and it's had a lot of changes since its inception. Back in the day, we had a lot of family attendance. We had quite a large showing, and we usually had to split them up into English-speaking families and Spanish-speaking families. Uh, Sometimes the classes would become kind of a family counseling session as well. Um, So that families would have a safe place to talk about their children and how they're communicating with their children. And of course, this um, would impact the time. So sometimes we would stop or pause teaching with our sign language lessons, and we would offer a safe space for families to share and to grow with each other. Um, Keep in mind that at the time that we started this class, we didn't have the option to have an online class. That was never even a thought in our mind. And so, of course, people were in person. And with the in-person learning, that means that they were meeting new families, making friends. We offered childcare for those classes and times have changed. Um, The number of families that we have in attendance has sadly grown very small. Um, And then COVID hit, which is an even more challenge, um, which means that we are using Zoom. Um, And so, as you can see, as we've experienced today, we've had some technical issues. We've had families trying to attend via apps on their phone, which means that sometimes signal is limited or just not optimal. We are still offering in-person classes, but attendance is quite low. We just did a survey pretty recently to find out if if some families were interested in in-person learning versus online learning, and so the plan is to offer both options.
0: I know talking to students uh, here at the university and and at other you know high schools and even classes I've taken online during the pandemic it seems harder to learn for some people, myself included. Are you finding that with the families that have participated in the online ASL classes, that it's harder for them?
4: Definitely. It is definitely harder for them to learn online. Keep in mind that when you're talking about learning as a deaf or hard of hearing person, it's double the pressure because you are not only listening, right? You're paying attention to the interpreter with your eyes, as well as maintaining an eye focus on whatever slides may be shared from the presenter. And so you're having to split your time with listening to the interpreter, watching the interpreter, as well as looking at the screen. And so oftentimes it requires a lot of extra prep work, um, printing out slides if they're given in advance, making sure that you have dedicated focus and dedicated time for that online learning environment. When it comes to live classes, those are easier, Um, But definitely that synchronous learning uh, rather than asynchronous learning is more of a challenge when it's done online. I'm not able to look away from my screen to take notes, for example. Um, I would need a note taker because then I'm looking at even more things and trying to divert my focus away from the message. So the same thing happens with our sign classes. Sometimes our family members who participate in the class are three or four people sharing a screen. And so they're all trying to share the screen, look together, figure out the hand shapes that they're trying to make all from a 2D screen. And so it requires a lot of wait time. Um, The teacher needs to see each hand, right, in order to correct, um, as well as the other parents are sharing other screens. And so we're looking at correcting hand signs and correcting shapes. And there's a confusion of who are you talking to because there's 10 people on the call at the same time. And so it's nice if we can have a limited number of participants, two or three instead of 10, um, because as more people join a Zoom call, for instance, the size of the screen gets even smaller and it's harder to see those little tiny hands on a little tiny screen.
0: Did you find that the classes had to be shorter because people had to pay so much more attention to the screen than they would in person? So you had to have less time on task. Definitely. You're right on with that.
4: We have scheduled an hour and a half originally for our online classes, but our teacher noticed um, just fatigue as well as technical difficulties causing a lot of frustration with families. And so we've shortened it to an hour. Um, and we've had even more families not be able to attend consistently because of either a scheduling conflicts or just a lack of uh, patience. And it becomes more of a struggle than a benefit for some of those families when it comes to online learning. So You need a lot of patience and a lot of tenacity in order to make it happen on Zoom. Um, When it's in-person, you can kind of check in as we go. Um, But having those lines of communication open is harder but necessary in order to make online learning happen.
0: It sounds like these classes are also community building and allowing people to get more involved in the community.
4: They are. Mm
0: -hmm.
4: And in the past, we have hosted what we call silent dinners or silent evenings. And so we've had families come out and we don't allow any talking. Um, And so if you're caught talking, you have to put in five cents into the little jar to help build some funding. So we used to do those fundraisers in the past. And our families really love that experience of catching people talking and having to put money in the jar. Those were fun nights.
0: That was Michelle Kelly from the Arizona School for the Deaf and Blind, who spoke with us with the help of ASL interpreter Brianna Browder. And that's the buzz for this week. You can find all our episodes online at azpm.org and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The Buzz Arizona. We're also on the NPR One app. Samantha Larned produced our show this week. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer and our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening.